The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Managing Editor of Feminist Studies, Carla Mantia, and author of Gender Trolling, How Misogyny Went Viral. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Carla. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Great. You're a professor and an author and an editor. Uh, you've taught at George Mason University, Gettysburg College, University of Maryland uh, in College Park, uh, just to name a few. Uh, Okay, gender trolling. Uh, That's a fairly new, I don't know if it's a new phenomenon. You say it's actually it's not. It's just a way of, uh, it's, it's something that is a phenomenon that has emerged out of, sort of the particular qualities of the internet, um, but it's not new. It represents an adaptation of sort of offline mis- misogyny to a new technology, if I'm saying it correctly. Anyway, but let's just kind of give a clear definition uh, in, in today's terms. What is it? What's gender trolling for those who have ev- not even heard the term? Well, yes, most people won't have heard of it because actually I coined the term because I'm trying to describe something that is happening to women online that's very different from more regular, generic trolling. Regular trolling is done, it's often a terrible practical joke, pranks. It can be very maddening, but gender trolling is unique in that it features graphic, sexualized, and gender-based insults, uh, calling women horrific names, sending awful pornographic images uh, with their, the woman's head grafted onto them, comments about women's genitalia. It includes ra- very pretty much across the board, very virulent rape and death threats, which are often credible, including times, dates, locations, that the threat of the gender troll is threatening to rape and or kill the target. Um, and then the other thing is it's very, um, it, most tr- regular trolling happens like on the venue where it happens. So if it's on a blog, they harass you on that blog. Gender trolling crosses online platforms so that groups of men who congregate in certain areas of the Internet will coordinate an attack on a woman um, who they identify for a variety of reasons, and the attacks will cross-platform. So it will happen on Twitter, on Tumblr, Instagram. They'll find her Facebook account. They'll find her email. They'll go after her phone, send her text messages. They will create blogs supposedly in her name, which is called a sock puppet, where they purportedly write things that she's saying which are defamatory. They will go after her on YouTube, Wikipedia, Reddit, So the attacks are multi-pronged. They're intense. They're characterized by many, up to hundreds per day. Uh, One woman reported over 50 uh, tweets or, you know, messages per hour. 
Um, and Carla, what thing, precipitates? What? Uh, yeah, I, I want to ask you. Let, what let me just precipitates? Say one more thing. They last up for yeah. years. They frequently last. Uh, what many women report for two, three, up to five years. What precipitates? So it's continuous. Yes, it's yeah. continuous. It's it's intense, and it lasts for years. And it doesn't matter if you don't answer; they still go after the women. Right, um, so, what, so let's get back. What precipitates it? Who would do this? What were we talking right. about? You said you usually men, and let's talk about these men. I mean, who are they, and what 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 motivates them to do this this gender trolling over years and years or period, long periods of time? So. You know, it's really impossible to really say who they are because of the anonymity of the Internet. However, there are certain sections of the Internet that people have called the manosphere, and they include certain sections of the uh, website 4chan, 8chan, Reddit, and then there's other specific sites, including a voice for men, slime pit, and there's other sites where men will congregate and they kind of nurse grievances. And then they'll happen, one, one will be browsing the Internet and happen to see a woman who, for whatever reason, he thinks is not in line with his view of the of the world, and will bring it back to the other men, and then they will foment and foster resentment, and then they will kind of coordinate. Hey, you you find out where she lives, you find out this, and I'll I'll go I'll find her Twitter account, and they will go after her. And because they congregate at these sites and they egg each other on, the attacks you know can last for longer and be more intense than if one person were was doing it. Well, you have examples in the book. Maybe we should talk specifically an example. Give an example of just, you know, the situation you described. Um, How does it happen? Give us an example of, like, what they, I guess these men uh, are are offended by something a woman says, and and then it, it starts this kind of behavior going, I guess. So what, give us an example. So there was, there's many examples in the book, and I've interviewed quite a few women as well as recounted many other stories. I'll just give one. Uh, there's a woman named Rebecca Watson who had gone to a conference. Uh, she's a secular humanist, and she'd gone to a conference and was just recounting an event that happened to her at the conference, and it was about her. Uh, she was uh, propositioned in an elevator at 4 a.m., and she was trying to say that maybe doesn't make women feel so safe that kind of behavior. It's a a long story. When you see the context, it makes sense. Uh, Regardless, the men were infuriated that she would dare say this, and they have, to to my knowledge, they are still going after her, and I believe that was in 2011 or 2012. It was many years ago, and they just go after her relentlessly, and they have just, you know, they found her home address. Many women have had to move because they've gotten such serious, incredible threats, Um, Women can make the 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 thing is they can it can be completely unexpl well, it's usually completely unexpected. For example, Ashley Judd, uh, the actor, made a comment uh, on Twitter about a play in a basketball game and was just inundated with, you know, vitriol and and vile threats and pornographic images. And another woman, a food blogger, uh, was just blogging about food and they decided that she was overweight and so therefore they just went after her. Um, and they go after not just the women, but their family members. In, that, in the case of the food blockers, they targeted her child. Um, they've made threats to people's parents, um, to their partners or husbands. Uh, a, one woman recently just said, I'm quitting because she'd been gender trolled for years. And then they started making rape and death threats against her five-year-old daughter. And she just said, that's too much. I'm, and she just had to quit 
all social media. I, I mean, that is such scary stuff, as it, just as you're describing all those examples. I mean, this is what happened to Leslie Jones, right? Le- the actress, exactly. the comedian. Yeah. It's exactly so, what happened to Leslie Jones. And that made, you know, because she's a prominent person, it was a little bit more talked about. But this is going on to women who are not so prominent all the time. And they're, they're just, women don't know how to handle it. It's shocking. They have no idea. I mean, they're just on the Internet writing a blog, making a comment, uh, playing a video game, and the, they, this stuff rains down on their heads for, for months and years. It's, it's what are we shocking. talking about in terms of... It's hard to believe. It is hard to believe. What are we talking about? Yeah. Well, there are several questions, but what are we talking about in terms of numbers? I mean, do we have any idea? I mean, you were talking about, you said one example, when this particular woman, it went back, this gender trolling, it went back to 2011. So we're, yeah. that's a long time. So there, are we talking about millions of women who this happens to around the world, I assume? Or you know, it's, yeah. again, numbers would be hard to know about. I mean, I, I, in my book, I'm, I certainly recount the stories of hundreds of women, and those were easily encountered through, you know, women I knew, women I was able to interview, and then just stories that just kept coming up when I would, you know, look, research the topic. Um, so I'm sure it's well more than that. Those are just the ones about which articles have been written. Um, so there's really no way of assessing the numbers. There's no place where they're reported. Um, so there's no way of knowing. As far as the numbers of men who are engaged in this, I did ask the women I interviewed if they had a sense of the numbers of men that were involved. And the answers range from hundreds to thousands, many thousands, and the woman who responded with many thousands is she had posted a YouTube video, and the comments were from thousands of unique uh, IP addresses, so she could tell that it was not one person over and over. So it, it's, it's definitely a large enough phenomenon that it's, you know, it's something we should be paying attention to. Um, and I don't... I, I, and when you say... Yeah, go, I just wanted paying attention to, yes, but now the second part of that, let's say yeah. we have, you know, obviously you're making people aware of it by, by writing this book, but what are the legal parameters? What can one do? What, you know, what's the recourse or is there any, at least legally, so, you know, on, on, when you're on the internet, you know, is there any, or are there any? So I do address that in my book. I address the, the laws that govern the internet. Um, but they're very, they don't apply to this kind of thing, partly because this is a fairly new phenomenon. Um, it's, again, I do argue that it is, it comes out of misogyny and a history of silencing women's speech and be, women being able to be in the public sector, um, women being able to make public statements, and there's a long history of that, which I document. Um, but the laws are not very good on this, um, and so people are, are doing a variety of things to try to increase the laws. What, the one that I see would be really important would be if law enforcement would have training to actually enforce the existing laws against credible threats. It is against the law to make a threat against someone that is credible. In other words, if I say I'm going to kill you at this time, at this date, that's against the law. That's not covered by, under free speech. The problem is that law enforcement, many, many of uh, the professionals, don't really understand what's going on, so they just advise women to turn off their computers. rather than, And they don't think that the Internet is real life, that anything that happens, they think that if you just turn off your computer, the threat will go away. Well, that's clearly not the case. Women have been approached um, in real life uh, pursuant to these kinds of attacks. So I do think if we could uh, have some more training of law enforcement, 
and some awareness that this is going on so that these threats were taken seriously and prosecuted. I think that that would have a chilling effect on many of these gender trolls. If they saw one or two of their brethren being uh, uh, jailed and fined heavily, it would certainly diminish the threats, in my opinion. Are there lawyers who specialize in this kind of, of, of law? There are a couple of attorneys who are starting to take it on. Uh, one thing that's been recently happening is uh, the rep- uh, congresswoman from Massachusetts, Catherine Clark, has recently introduced uh, the f- her fifth bill she's introduced on this topic. She herself has been a victim of this kind of thing. Uh, after she introduced a bill uh, to make swatting illegal, swatting is when it's another form of harassment where they will call, they find out your address and they call the police and say there's an emergency at your house, such as a hostage situation or a gunman. So the police swarm the house with a SWAT team, guns bared, not knowing that there's nothing going on. And that's an extremely dangerous situation for all concerned because anyone coming out or making a move that they have no idea what's going on clearly could be shot and killed. Um, As far as to my knowledge, it hasn't happened yet. But uh, Catherine Clark was swatted right after she introduced a bill against swatting. Um, Her most recent bill is to ask the FBI to track and record incidents of cyber crimes because right now they're not. Uh, And women who have contacted the FBI have not been given any kind of, the FBI has not paid attention to their concerns at all. Why do you think, uh, I mean, I think of myself as somewhat, or maybe more informed, but I'm, I assume that I'm informed at least as much as the general public, and I, I read mm-hmm. in newspapers and, and I'm online looking stuff up. But why I haven't really, it doesn't seem to me that, that gender trolling or swatting uh, gets too much publicity in, say, our major newspapers. Why is yeah. that? I, you know, I don't know. I don't understand. The biggest thing that happened, there was a thing called Gamergate, which many people have heard of which was where, it's a long story, but it involved three women who were targeted by these gamers, partly because the men felt that the women were trying to talk about sexism in video gaming, and they were targeted. All three of the women had to uh, either flee their homes, and some of them actually had to move their residence entirely due to the direct and credible threats made against them. Um, So that did receive some, some news. Yeah, I don't know why it's not uh, more discussed. I, it's very peculiar to me because this is a very serious uh, situation for many women. And a lot of women, re, you know, are just leaving the Internet, which is, you know, terrifically unfair and also a hamper to women's ability to uh, engage in their professions, as most many women, uh, many people need the Internet for their jobs. So to leave the Internet is you know, is not an acceptable solution. And for many, uh, especially for journalists, uh, their presence on social media, Twitter and places like that, is part of their ability to kind of make a name for themselves. So it's unacceptable to ask women to just uh, not engage in activities on the Internet as a solution. Carla, you mentioned and you talk about in the book, and we talk, we sort of uh, alluded to it in the beginning of the conversation, there's a history behind this. I mean, yes. and as yeah, so let's talk about that history. Uh, your 
what is the history behind it in terms of women and women not being able to speak out and women traditionally, uh, and it's, and I agree with you, I think it is a tradition that we've had. And now we're, as you say, using the Internet to uh, to uh, silence women. But we've all you say we've always done that. Let's talk about that history. Yes, so uh, um, there have been laws that have kept women from speaking in public in the past. Um, women have, in, in the United States in the 1800s, uh, there's a couple of cases of women being asked to write salutatorian speeches for their graduation, graduating class at college and then not being able to deliver them because women were not allowed to speak in public venues. Um, the London anti-slavery convention, in that case, women uh, who attended were actually made to sit uh, to one side behind a curtain. So there's been a law, and women have who have spoken in public have had, you know, rotten tomatoes and things thrown at them and harassed, uh, heckled uh, out of being able to speak. So there has definitely been a long history of women um, not being able to be speaking out in public. Uh, and I believe that this is kind of, uh, it's the same, motivated by a similar sentiment where women should not be achieving prominence in such a way that they're getting fame and notoriety. Um, there's one woman, uh, Kathy Sierra, who was very prominent in the technology community. Uh, in the, she was one of the earliest victims of this kind of uh, attacks. I think it was in 2007, um, and she was just, you know, was giving talks all over the country about technology topics and technology. And uh, you know, again, it's unclear why she was why anyone's targeted, but. In her case, it was probably because she was achieving so much prominence. And she has just simply quit her career and, and just doesn't even go on the Internet at all anymore. She's so harassed. And it was new for her, so it was particularly shocking. It's, it's always shocking when it happens to women. But I think that if we start to understand that this is a thing that can happen, um, when it does happen, it might not be you know, quite as impactful if you can see that, wow, I'm one of thousands of women that this is happening to. It's not really about me. Right, and I think that you hit on a good point because I think if women realize there's other women out there and there's some kind of a support system in place, that changes everything and that they have the opportunity, that you don't feel like you're alone. Uh, I think when you feel isolated and then this happens to you, uh, it has to be terrifying or there are just maybe even a few people who know about it, but sort of enlisting a kind of support system. And given that, as I mentioned in the beginning, I mean, you have taught at many universities and colleges. What's the response? I mean, these are you you teach young women, I assume, or many young women or have taught many young women. Uh, have they been are they aware that this 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 happens, gender trolling uh, or not? And has it happened to them at their age? Well, actually, I'm, I haven't been teaching for quite a while. I'm now the managing editor, so um, I haven't really talked to young women about this, um, other than the women I interviewed in my book and the young women, so many young women this is happening to. But, you know, it may happen more to women who have a little bit more prominence uh, than, than young women. I think young women are, are victims of other kinds of Internet misogyny, um, certainly revenge porn, um, uh, where the... Uh, images of them being passed around, things like that. Um, but uh, I think, I, from my, from what I've seen so far, this is happening more to maybe women who are slightly older who've achieved a little something, or you know, have it together to have a blog. Not that young women can't, but it's probably more common among women who are a little bit older. So it may be that it's it's more professional level women, women who who've kind of trying to make a name for themselves on the internet. 
So it's women who are threatening or, or are viewed as if they're not threatening, but they're <clears throat> viewed as a threat. Is that it? As you say, successful women, professional women. Actually, you're talking about women who have a voice and yeah. we want to, uh, yeah, and it, that's what I hear you saying anyway. They have a voice and those, those men who are gender trolling, um, want to remove that voice or get rid or erase that voice. Yes, the British journalist Laurie Penny wrote an article called A Woman's Opinion is the Miniskirt of the Internet. And by that she meant the way, same way that the miniskirt was seen as a justification for women being raped, that a woman's opinion is kind of a red flag to these gender trolls, a woman having an opinion on the Internet. And that's pretty much, I mean, it's, there's a woman, uh, Mary Beard, a very uh, renowned professor of classics at Cambridge who was gender trolled. I mean, just, she was just talking about the classics on BBC in England. It's, it's, it really does seem like the common denominator is that a woman had an opinion. And we can only, you know, conjecture about why this upsets these men, but, but it, apparently it does. So how do, we're talking, now we've been talking about the women and, and defining gender trolling. What about the men? Who are we talking about? I mean, do we, because these men were once little boys and... What are we doing uh, as a society or as a culture to raise men who engage in this kind of behavior? Yeah, um, I mean, I can offer Give my opinion. Give your opinion. opinion. Yeah, there's I'm, no way of knowing, really, because there's no way of interviewing these men because they're all anonymous and avowedly so. Um, uh, yeah, my sense is that, and from, from uh reading a lot of uh, blogs and uh, articles from other men who are decrying this kind of behavior, in particular Arthur Chu, who was a, uh, he won Jeopardy many, many times. That gave him his fame, and now he's a blogger. But he has talked about that he thinks that these men have what he calls a sense of aggrieved entitlement, so that they feel that they're missing out on something that they're, they, should, they ought to be getting and that they're entitled to it. And so when they see women successful and doing things, it makes them angry because they feel that they should have that rather than the women. Um, I'm not sure if the men would even articulate it that way, but I do think that people can be motivated by things that are kind of, that they haven't fully articulated. But that is the sense that I get from uh, men who talk about what, what they believe drives men to do these kinds of things. What about women? Because you say it's usually or uh, usually men who do this, but are there some women who do it also? Gender there trolling? are some. There have been some women. Uh, one of the things that's interesting that I have seen, um, and again, there's no way to have a complete survey of what's happening, but that the women who are involved often are are not anonymous, are using their full names, with, and the idea is that the men are kind of using these women as a front to say they're not sexist. And that the women do it, the few women, and I've only encountered three or four women who've been involved, but there may be more. I mean, I haven't encountered them all. But the women who do it kind of get a certain, um, you know, praise from the men so that they, they, that is the gratification to them, that the men, you know, love them for, for siding with them. Um, but again, it's, it's really the, the, it's overwhelmingly men, although there are a few women, and I would call them at this point tokens, basically. And I they think seem that they're to be deployed as tokens. Yeah, or as a front. I guess that's all I can think of. Is the, and the and word again, that... you never know. I mean, well, I mean, I think that's why they they encourage the women to use their real names because if the women claim to be anonymous, no one would believe a woman was doing it. All right. Well, 
Yeah, go ahead. So one thing I wanted to talk about is some of the ways that women are fighting back against this. Because women, you know, it's been really tough and a lot of women experience extreme anxiety. Many of the women I interviewed ended up having to go on anti-anxiety medication. It's, it's just they're terrified. They never know if someone they see on the street is, seems to be following them. Is this one of the gender trolls? That has happened. Women have been approached um, in a variety of ways. Women have been targeted such that they would, uh, someone might say, I saw you in the grocery store wearing a red shirt yesterday. So it is a constant fear. Um, and yet women have showed tremendous courage. Um, uh, one woman created an office space. It was an art installation. It was an office. And she papered everything in the office, all the furniture and the desk and the chair, with the messages that she and other women had received to kind of, kind of bring home the idea that being on the Internet is part of our professional lives for many women um, and that the, our professional lives are being you know, covered with this kind of harassment. Another woman, um, Chelsea Woolley, she's a blogger, uh, made a video called That's Just Mean, where she asked young men to read things that had been tweeted to her back to her. So these young men were not gender trolls. They were just regular men. And she asked them, please read these things. And they, the men were just horrified. They like would stop in mid-sentence and say, I can't read this. This is too awful. And I, that video was very powerful because I think it drove home how cruelly brutal these things are that these women are sent. Um, there's a, uh, a, another, another woman, uh, Anita Sarkeesian, who is one of the women of Gamergate, tweeted just one week's of harassment. She just tweeted all the harassment she got for one week. So rather than, you know, a lot of women just kind of can't take it and maybe leave the Internet, and no one blames them for that. But other women are kind of putting forth this, this information so that other people are able to see what, what they've been going through shedding light on it rather than, you know, trying to, trying to just uh, flee, which all reactions are understandable. No one is blaming anyone for fleeing. But it is really uh, courageous, some of these women who are doing these other things. Yeah. So rather than retreating or hiding or fleeing, as you say, and we're not judging that kind of behavior, but it seems to be at least somewhat effective if you're transparent, if you bring it out in the open, if you yeah. make it real and make it real, not just to yourself, obviously, and your family and your friends, but to, to the world in the same way that pe- those who are gender trolling do, you sort of, you, you do the same thing. I, I think that's, uh, to me, that sounds like a, 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 pr- a logical way to, to fight back. Uh, yeah, it's to, very powerful, I, I believe. Um, one woman, Lindy West, who is a writer and activist, has gotten terrific uh, rape and death threats and hate, hate uh, comments. She, there was a, a popular podcast, This American Life, made an episode out of what had happened to her, and that was very powerful as well. Well, it's been great talking to you today, and you are, your book is a very important book and uh, one that I recommend that we all read because, uh, boy, it really puts us in touch in terms of what's happening, gender trolling, uh, how misogyny went viral, and the author is Carla Mantila. And Carla, is there a website that we can go to that uh, we can get more information about you and the book? So I do have a page on Facebook about it. So just go to Facebook and look at and Google gender trolling. It will come up. And you can also buy the book on Amazon or many other vendors as well. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. It was great talking thank, to you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about this important topic. We're going to take a break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. We'll be back in a minute. Mm-hmm. 
Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Andrea Hertzberg. September is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month, and every year over 22,000 women in the United States are newly diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and over 14,000 women die from the disease. The nonprofit SHARE supports and educates women facing ovarian cancer and provides information to those interested in learning about the disease and taking greater control of their health. 20-year ovarian cancer survivor, Andrea Hertzberg, who is here today, is the hotline coordinator for SHARE, whose mission is to help women and their families address the emotional and practical issues that arise from a cancer diagnosis. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Andrea. Well, I want to thank you for helping share, spread the word about ovarian cancer symptoms and how important it is for women to uh, stay informed and take care of themselves and take action if, in the event of a health crisis. Yeah, that's what we're here to talk about. We're going to talk about you and your particular journey or your, partic- or your diagnosis. We're talking about 20-year cancer survivor, which is amazing. It's great. Congratulations. Uh, and well, thank then you also very much. talk. Yeah, and then talk specifically about share. So, let, but let's start with your story, because that's how you got to be involved with SHARE and to be uh, in the position that you are. So what happened, I mean, 20 years ago, 20-year uh, ovarian cancer. I mean, when I, you, as a woman, when I hear the word ovarian cancer, I always think, oh, that's a death sentence. I'm not going to, you know, if, I, if I'm diagnosed, that's it for me because, uh, you know, it, they can't cure ovarian cancer. So, Well, unfortunately, that's the reaction. I mean, cancer is a devastating diagnosis for many people, no matter what stage or what type. They hear that word and they blank, but I will tell you that with ovarian cancer, because there is no early screening test and because 
most of the ovarian cancers are unfortunately diagnosed in the later stages, women are, um, you know, they, they are overwhelmed when they hear it, you know, and that's why we're so glad that we have a network of survivors or volunteers who are informed and trained and who can answer our helpline and tell them that, you know, women do survive and women do thrive and to not lose hope that there are good treatments out there and experts that can help them. All right, now, we're talking about treatments, and, and then I want, are there new treatments, or have there been new treatments, say, over the past 20 years? That's one question. But also, the first question is, in terms of diagnoses, uh, uh, they, whoever they are, we, I always hear, well, you know, it's really hard to recognize the symptoms of ovarian cancer because they mimic the symptoms of other diseases. You know, you get a pain here, you get different things. So it's hard to to recognize that perhaps, you know, that you you know, you may have ovarian cancer. Uh, so is that true? Well, that's true? true, Catherine, and that's why it's important for women to understand that when they hear the symptoms, as we're going to discuss them today, it's key to understand that they're worrisome if they're new and not normal for you, if you have them for almost daily for more than two weeks. And you know what? If you get them checked out and it turns out to be one of the intestinal ailments or something else, um, you know, uh, Kudos to you. I mean, you know, but you, you don't want to, you know, kind of uh, avoid uh, insisting and persisting to get a diagnosis because um, if it turns out to be ovarian cancer, you want to start treatment promptly. Uh, so, you know, and until recently, they used to build, well, part of what we want to do is dispel the myth that ovarian cancer is the disease that whispers the silent killer because there are symptoms. I had, I had some of them. Uh, you know, what 20 years ago, and I was quite young. I was 39, but I, I, I kind of know I, I happen to carry one of the BRCA mutations. But the science has evolved, you see. When my dad um, developed, uh, developed colon cancer um, and, and um, died in his late 50s, then the connection between colon and breast and ovarian wasn't as known as it is today by studies that have come after it. So it's important to stay up on the science and the research, you know, because, you know, some women are at higher risk than other women, but it's a relatively rare cancer. Your chances over over your lifetime of developing ovarian cancer are 1 in 70. As you know, for breast cancer, the the chances are much higher. But, you know, 1 in 70 makes it a relatively rare cancer, but what makes it a challenging cancer is is the fact that only 15% of the cases are diagnosed in the earliest stage when the cure rates are very high. What are the symptoms? What were your symptoms? And were your symptoms typical of ovarian cancer? My symptoms were typical. Um, and I'm going to give you the four major symptoms that women should be aware of. And again, it's key to understand that they're, that if they're new and not normal for you, you know your body, you're the expert, and get it checked out. Uh, bloating, pelvic or abdominal pain, difficulty eating or feeling full quickly, urinary symptoms, and that means having to go with great urgency or great frequency. Now, there are additional symptoms that, you know, I mean, we're all different, and we may experience some of these, and the, the top, the ones that I gave you, those four, bloating, pelvic or abdominal pain, difficulty eating, feeling full quickly, the urinary symptoms are the ones that uh, many women who are later diagnosed have reported. Sometimes there aren't any symptoms, you know, which is why it's key for women. You know, September is actually a good month for National Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month because everybody's getting back to work, back to school, back to the busy hubbub of their lives. And sometimes women have a tendency to 
not put themselves high on the priority list, and you really have to keep your medical appointments and check out anything suspicious. So I just want to tell you that the additional symptoms may include fatigue, indigestion, back pain, constipation, change in bowel habits, pain with intercourse, menstrual irregularities. You know, uh, I have colleagues at SHARE, we do these uh, the lunchtime seminars for women at their workplaces, and, you know, people get panic-stricken because everybody has one or more of these symptoms at some point, you know, but the key is new and not normal for you. Yeah, new and not normal for you. I think you can keep repeating that because if they just come out of the blue and you've never had these symptoms before, then it's something to take a look at. It's always scary, though, Andrea, because you're you're going for something that you don't want them to find. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's so you're... Reluctant yeah, sometimes. And, and we, yeah, you know, yeah. some women are totally blindsided. You know, I was certainly because actually I had had the point. It's very important for everybody out there to have conversations with their doctor about any kind of family history of any illness, really, um, because they will be surveilled and monitored uh, more closely. So I had had the conversation with my primary care doctor. You know, I, at the time I was diagnosed, I was 39 and I had a, a little girl. And I was in a very demanding job. And I, I think that, um, you know, we had had the conversation about starting colonoscopies 10 years before the general population. So I was going to start having colonoscopies at 40, but I was 39 when these symptoms appeared, you know. And that was so related to your... in the back of our pro- minds, yeah. we were thinking, oh, colon, but it wasn't. So, what, you were 39 years old. That's pretty scary with a young daughter. Um, mm-hmm. And... You know, at that age, usually we think, you know, you've got many more years to go and you're not really thinking about ovarian cancer or maybe even any other kinds of cancers. But what now there's questions that women ask. I know a lot, even amongst, you know, myself, my girlfriends, like, uh, for instance, I want to this is something uh, hormone replacement therapy, because that's always been controversial, still is, I guess. Um, Does that increase the risk for ovarian cancer? That's one of the questions that seems to always come up. It does. It does. Um, not, you know, it actually increases the risk of breast cancer at a higher rate slightly than of ovarian cancer. Um, the studies, as you know, it, it can really make you nuts. You know, you read a study and then the next two years later they come out with another study. It, it, I've, I, it, the, um, the American Cancer Society has a statement on hormone replacement therapy and breast and ovarian cancer risk, and they, they really break it down. And it's not as much as you, you know, like some things slightly elevate your risk or elevate your risk. And of course, it's up to you. Can you, can you treat the postmenopausal symptoms if you're suffering with hot flashes? You know, certainly it's a conversation to have with your doctor. You know, a lot of things elevate your risk, some things more than others. With ovarian cancer, I think a strong family history of breast, ovarian, colon, which might uh, make you a candidate for, you know, having inherited a, a genetic mutation, that would be um, the thing that would elevate your risk the most. But certainly these other factors like, you know, your risk increases with age. Your risk definitely increases with a strong family history. Reproductive so, history. Your risk is higher if you've never had children or you've had a history of difficulty getting pregnant, right? Yeah, so it's, um, it's really important to know your history. You can have all these history. risk factors, Catherine, and never get yeah. the disease. Conversely, unfortunately, you could have none of these risk factors and be diagnosed. And so low it. risk doesn't mean low, no risk, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah there's nothing that's definitive. That's what we're just, yeah. Well, I want to look at you. mentioned HRT, and that's medication exposure. So right. your risk 
is higher if you've taken, maybe higher if you've taken hormone replacement, but your risk is lower if you, at any time in your life, have used oral contraceptives, the birth control pill, for five years or more. It doesn't have to be consecutive. Drops by, uh, the studies show that your risk will drop by 50%. So that means, you know, again, it's a numbers thing. If, if, if one in 70 or one in 75 women, you know, are going to have the risk of developing, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to drop it to one in 140 or one in 150, you know? Hmm. What about ovarian cysts? That seems to be a common thing that women it suffer from. And yeah. your, your doctors are in- the experts yeah. on that. And they are common and they can tell usually, like, like if your doctor says, oh, this is a, a common cyst, it's fluid filled, let's monitor that. You don't have to have undue anxiety or fear about that. That's very common. And gynecologists, gynecologists will often monitor, assist, the fibroid situation, you know. And those are um, common, and, and they'll monitor it. And, you know, if they think, if they are suspicious at all, if they feel something or the nature of it on a transvaginal sonogram seems suspicious to them, then it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to mean that you're going to go for further testing. There are blood tests, there are scans, and you should. If you hear the word suspicious with any of the below-the-belt cancers, you should confer with an expert in the field, and the name of that expert is gynecologic oncologist. They are specially trained, and they treat the women's cancers. Well, now, is this person, he or she, someone that your primary care physician would automatically recommend or just your plain old gynecologist would recommend? Or do you need to have this information yourself so that you can get to the right professional? Well, it's good to know about it. So if you hear the word suspicious, uh, and you, you could, you know, I mean, you know, it, it takes a strong person to say, well, what do you mean by that? And they're going to say, well, you know, it's a mixed, you know, it looks fluid filled. It looks like there might be a hard surface. We just want to rule out cancer. Well, once you're trying to rule out cancer, I, I would insist, you know, knowing what I know, I mean, you're talking to somebody who, who you know, w- went through a prolonged treatment for ovarian cancer. So I would err on the side of, you know, when, when I get a helpline call, by the way, our uh, helpline, which is staffed seven days a week by informed uh, ovarian cancer survivors, um, you know, uh, one of my colleagues is a social worker, um, <laughs> uh, is 866-537-537. Four two seven three, and I would err on the side of we we tell people if they if they are if they have symptoms that have jumped up the suspicion level, even if it's a drive, we tell them you know please confer with a gynecologic oncologist. Now we've been talking about the disease itself and and you know be specific in terms of what symptoms and diagnosis and those kinds of things. But as a social worker, I mean Andrea, I'm also interested in like. It's so important. I mean, you've survived this for 20 years, like your emotional response. I mean, when you first when you were first diagnosed and, and, and the physician tells you you have ovarian cancer uh, and here you are 39 years old with your husband, your little girl. And then how is it for you for the 20 years? You know, are you terrified every day when you wake up in the morning that oh, it could come back again? Or does that uh, have any impact on your life? So those are two questions, but. Well, those are great questions, and what happens is that the farther away you get from the diagnosis, you you, you may start to relax, although when you go for your yearly, in my case, yearly and now it's back to six months uh, appointments, you know, or you have a scan, 
Uh, and also because I carry the BRCA gene, I, my, I, I get MRIs, bilateral MRIs of my breasts and mammograms every year. Um, you know, you, you can have a certain level of anxiety, you know, about that. You know, the cancer, anybody who's been diagnosed with cancer or serious illness that goes into a remission, you know, you're, 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 you have to learn how to live with uncertainty. It's not easy ever, but it's, and it, and you know, whoever you were, you're bringing that person to this diagnosis. So, like, I'm an optimistic gal. I always was. So I, you know, I mean, I won't say I was never worried. I was worried plenty, you know, in, in, in the first, you know, um, I would say five to ten years, very worried. But, you know, as life goes on and you continue to enjoy life and savor life's positive moments, you know, you can, um, you can progress. And we always tell people who call the helpline who have anxiety and fear, it's a good time. Have you considered an in-person support group? Have you considered online support or telephone support, please call our helpline at any time because at SHARE we say our experiences, our expertise, we know how to listen, you know, we try not to, you know, we, we, we mute our own situations so that we can listen to our callers, we have wonderful volunteers who do just that, and, you know, if you had somebody who was anxious and fearful all their lives about other things, you know, it might be a great time to get therapy, to have, you know, help through medication, you know, these are all things that, you know, they're understandable and it's normal. Yeah, we call that pre-morbid functioning in social work, you know, how to, mm-hmm. as you're describing it, the kind of person mm-hmm. you were before your diagnosis, you're still that person mm-hmm. on how you handled whatever uh, traumas, good things and, and traumatic events, uh, you'll do the mm-hmm. same uh, once you're diagnosed. I think so. I think that's an important point. Uh, what about... Okay, let's talk specifically now about SHARE, because your experience, besides being a 20-year cancer survivor, you have an interesting background. You are a reporter, a news reporter, and you are also an NYPD. So how does that fit into your pre-morbid functioning and how you handled all of this? Well, actually, it was very good training. As a news reporter, by the way, I cut my teeth at the Albany Student Press. Very proud of that. I was an associate news editor in the 70s. I, um, I, my, my news background really helped because I was used to interviewing people who knew a lot about a subject that I didn't know a lot about. Uh, and I was good at taking notes and I was go- good at doing more research. Um, and, you know, 20 years ago, the Internet wasn't was what it is now. And the Internet, I might say, is a double-edged sword because there's some great, credible sites. And then there's some sites that are going to make it... Um, ramp up the anxiety level for some of the patients that are seeking help. You know, you really got to go to good, credible sites. Um, so that helped. And then, you know, the um, my NYPD background, uh, I served in really diverse assignments over the 26 and a half years, and I have to say that as an organization, it was extremely supportive of me and my family when I was going through uh, treatment. And, um, you know, it's funny, we have, we're very... I was always cognizant of the fact that I had benefits that other cancer patients did not. Uh, because I was a uniform member of the force, I really did have unlimited sick leave getting paid my full salary. And when I came back to work, I was so appreciative and so grateful that, um, you know, with the exception of having teeth pulled when you had to take sick time, I never took another sick day. And I had, uh, you know, another you know, 15 years to do in my career. Never took another sick day yeah. because I was so grateful at that time that the NYPD 
you know, took care of me and my family. Um, and, you know, timely intelligence. You know, uh, the, I uh, worked under a police commissioner who brought in this ComStat, and um, timely intelligence, which you have to, you know, have when you're facing a serious illness, and relentless follow-up. Those are two of the um, factors that uh, drive ComStat, and uh, they help me. All right, so... Bring that now bring us up to date on on share because uh, yes, you're, I love to talk about you, share. So share yeah, is because we want years old people to access. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Did, did you have a question? Yeah, I was going to say. I just want to you know because share is is uh, uh, you have access to share all over the country uh, and absolutely in toll City. free. All yeah. of our services are free, and we have toll free numbers. Uh, the Ovarian Helpline. I have given you a rate. I'm going to give it again. Eight six six. Five three seven four two seven three. Now we also help women facing a breast cancer diagnosis, women facing a metastatic breast cancer diagnosis. We also help family and friends through our caregiver peers. We also help women who are more comfortable speaking Spanish through Latina Share. And if anybody's looking for any of those other helplines, eight four four ask Share A S K S H A R E. 844-ASK-SHARE. We also have a website, www.sharecancersupport.org. SHARE has been around 40 years. It started very um, modestly when a cancer doctor, at a time when cancer really wasn't discussed as openly as it is now, um, uh, started a support group for, for women who were facing a breast cancer diagnosis, and that has blossomed into a national organization that offers support and information. We do education. We do webinars. So anybody can tap in from across the country. Um, we do advocacy. Uh, you know, our people who come to us as support group members or participants or helpline callers and who, when they're up to it, decide, I want to be an advocate for other women, for other patients, they can train for our helplines. They can train to be um, facilitators of our support groups. They can also, um, you know, become experts and go to Washington to lobby for funds, um, and we do outreach. And some of our women serve on committees where they help give a patient perspective to deciding which uh, cutting-edge research gets funded. We're very proud of that. And, Andrea, did I read somewhere that you also connect women with other women who are specifically in the same have stages of, of, let's say, any the cancers that you just described. You know, it gets very yes. specific. Like sometimes, that- sometimes a caller's concern is very general. Like, I've been diagnosed with late-stage ovarian cancer. I've been reading on the Internet, does anybody ever survive this? And, of course, anybody that calls that person back will be a survivor, you know, of ovarian cancer. If the person wants to talk to somebody who survived a particular stage, they're early, they're late, they're this, they're that, or a particular um, situation. We try our best to, to match it. Like, in other words, if, a, if somebody called up and was uh, a young mother, even though my experience, you know, I'm past it, maybe they want to talk to me because it's like talking to themselves 20 years from now, you know, and it gives them, you know, great hope and inspiration. Or they may ask me, how did I talk to my daughter at the time? You know, did I notice any issues at school? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's really important because I think people, it's very different if you're diagnosed when you're 35 or if you're 65. The disease may be the same. That's right. And we have women who call up and say, 
was anybody else diagnosed at age 75 or 80? Did anybody follow through on this very, you know, kind of, you know, intensive treatment? And we can, we have uh, peers, we call, you know, peer support, and people will, you know, get back to them. Let's say somebody is going to take a particular kind of drug or have a particular kind of procedure, and they want to talk to somebody who's done that, or they're weighing their options, or they're at a treatment crossroads, which, you know, because ovarian cancer can be a very recurrent cancer, women are sometimes faced with coping with it as a chronic disease, and it's very, very difficult. Sometimes I think it's more difficult um, for a woman to deal with uh, a recurrence than it is to deal with the initial you know, it's kind of hard to say. It depends on who you are. But, you know, it can be devastating. You did everything you had to do, and it's back. Now is this it, you know. And, you know, we have people who have been, you know, in, in several long remissions after a recurrence, you know. So there's always something that we're going to try to do to help that caller, you know. And we only have, I, I could, uh, I have lots more questions for you, but I can't ask them all because we only have two minutes left. But... Uh, so I want, yeah, it's uh, it's just a great organization. And, uh, you know, I think you've really given us a, a really good, uh, you know, overall understanding of what's available. But, again, what all you need to do is call that hotline if any or all of the things that we've been talking about today are, you know, are, are something that you're concerned about. So give us the hotline number again. Well, it's, I, here, I have it in front of me, 844-ASK. Share. That's the general one. That'll get you to the menu for all the helplines. We call, you know what? On the ovarian helpline, we call it a helpline because some we have uh, uh, survivors who, who cover it seven days a week, but you'll leave a message and we'll get back to you at the first opportunity, which is usually pretty quick. You know? Um, yeah. 866-537-4273 is the one that's specific to the, the ovarian cancer survivors answering it. Great. This is uh, this has been so informative. Uh, great, you're doing great work, and you're doing great too. So that's wonderful. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we're so happy you are on the show today. Thank you. It's Andrea Hertzberg, and uh, it, the organization is Share. Um, thank you so much, Andrea. Thank you. Uh, we are going to have to say goodbye. Have a great okay. week, and we'll see, yeah, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.